Today's readings are Romans 1, 16 and 17, and Galatians 2, 16. They can be found on pages 1037 and 1075 of the Bible's next year seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's words. Romans 1, 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Galatians two sixteen. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. The word of the Lord. We have uh, prayed over the speakers enough this morning. All right. I invite you to join me in prayer. Our God of grace. We are told that you are loving and that you are good, but we have doubted that often. And sometimes some of us have run away from that or run away from you not believing that you could be good, that you could be loving. And as we approach you this morning, as we listen for your voice this morning, we come with different types of baggage that we carry into this space that has been given to us by the story and the circumstances and even the genetics of our lives. We walk into here with different stories as very different people. And so while some of us come quite hesitant about the things that are spoken and the statements of faith that we are given to speak together, others of us come embracing excitedly and having a sense perhaps that you have been more real to us than you ever have been. And meanwhile, someone just two seats over is feel like you've been farther, you're farther away now than you've ever been to us in our lives, and we wonder if we'll ever feel close to you again. Some of us come with great hurts and sadness too, and we want to remember that that there are tender places that some of us find ourselves this morning. Places of sadness or places of depression or anxiety. And from all of these kinds of stories, baggage, and places that we find ourselves, you speak into our lives and we look for your words now. Because it's true that we really are more of a mess than we want the other people around here to know. We're more broken than we care to admit, but your story of grace tells us that you have, have come down, you've descended into the brokenness so that even though we're more of a mess now through Christ, we are more loved and accepted than we ever imagined, than we ever could hope. Help us to, um, to hear that, for it to sink in in some mysterious way through your spirit this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So in the Bible, in the Bible, there's this um, message 
that um, Christians, sometimes we talk about it as the gospel, sometimes we talk about it as the message of grace. And it's an absolutely unique message. There's, there's really no other tradition, um, no other religion, no other philosophy that, that comes to us as humans this way. It's a message that offers you just radical relief in the drudgery and the striving and the work and the, and the, the heaviness of life. And it can give you not just radical relief, but it can give you a contagious delight. And it has the power to settle agitated lives, this message, this gospel. And during the time of the Reformation, in the 1500s, really this message had been, this message of grace, this message of the gospel, it had been buried, in a sense, for over a thousand years. It really had not surfaced and shown itself in, in any real meaningful way for almost a thousand years, like a buried treasure just waiting for someone to accidentally trip over it again and, and look down and find that the scriptures are filled with this message. And so um, a young Martin Luther, who was um, very much in the Catholic Church, um, a young monk, um, who was studying and, and teaching around the Bible, um, was, of course, the key figure in kind of getting this message of grace back out there again. And I want to read a quote from him from his commentary on Galatians, one of the passages we read. Um, was Galatians 2. We, we read two very brief passages that were central, really, to the, to the rediscovery and recultivation of this message. So this is what Martin Luther says in his commentary in Galatians about this message. He says, But this most excellent righteousness, and yes, the quote is in your worship guide if that helps to look along, this most excellent righteousness, that of faith I mean, which God imputes to us through Christ without works, it is passive, whereas the others are active. We do nothing in this matter. We give nothing to God, but simply receive and allow someone else to work in us. That is God. Therefore, it seems to me that this righteousness of faith, or Christian righteousness, we can well be called passive righteousness. Thus, I abandon all active righteousness, both of my own and of God's law, and I embrace only that passive righteousness that is the righteousness of grace, mercy, and forgiveness of sins. I rest only on that righteousness that is the righteousness of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Okay. Um, one of the, one of the uh, fruits of the Reformation was different kinds of statements of faith that reaffirmed the centrality of this gospel message. And so let me read one of those from us, a part of the Heidelberg Catechism called Question and Answer 56. What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? The answer, I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature, which I need to struggle against all my life. Rather, by grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ to free me forever from judgment. And then... A few questions later in this catechism, there's this statement, which I think is just incredibly lofty and powerful. How are you righteous before God? 
Answer, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all of God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined towards all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is accept this gift with a believing heart. Heidelberg Catechism. Question and answer 60. So that's what this message really is. But the question is this. Have you ever felt like that grace that's spoken of in there? Have you ever felt like grace is really hard to hang on to? Have you felt that? That grace. How do you hang on? How do you keep that the thing? How do you keep it you know, in your possession, in your life, at the center? It feels almost like it's like walking a tightrope. Or better yet, there's some, a game that I played at a youth camp when I was in high school where they threw us all in a swimming pool and it was like water polo except the thing that we were given was this really giant watermelon and it was covered in Vaseline and they threw it into the pool and we had to try to get it from one end to the other. I think that hanging on to the gospel of grace, the message of grace, the message of justification as is talked about through the Reformation, is like trying to, hang, trying to play that game. It's like trying to hang on to a greased watermelon. And I would say there's two parts of the analogy that fit. One is the heaviness of the object, and the second is the slipperiness. So let's talk about those two things. Let's talk about the Reformation in terms of those two things, the heaviness of grace and the slipperiness of grace. First of all, grace, the gospel, it's heavy, it's big, it's unmanageable in its size. It's not something that you get to, as a Christian, control and fully get into your grasp and fully understand and even try to leverage for your own purposes. That's not how grace works because it's a a God idea. It's a God-sized idea in a world filled with human-sized ideas. And so it's wily, it's, it's big, it's bigger than we can wrap our minds around. It's a God-sized idea. Now, as humans, we naturally seek, um, we seek ultimate things. And John Calvin, one of the reformers, said we have the seed of religion in us. It's, we are made to connect with God and to seek God. And so we've always been seeking ultimate meaning, but we've also always imagined, essentially, and this is the default drive of the human heart, we've imagined we can achieve ultimate meaning. I can work my way towards the ultimate. So that's our biggest idea, and that's the repeated idea that we keep going back to, that we can get there through our correct prayers, our correct Lifestyle, our correct sacrifices, our correct laws or law-keeping. We can get to the ultimate. And so the gospel, grace, is audacious. It's beyond our wildest ideas because it says the ultimate came to us. We can't get there. God bridged the gap created by our incorrectness. Jesus lays upon us 
You know how I was saying we try to get there to the ultimate through our correctness, through our lifestyle, our prayers, our sacrifices, our obedience. Instead, Jesus lays upon us the gift of his correct prayers, his correct lifestyle, his correct sacrifice, his correct law-keeping. And so that we are left with nothing left to prove in terms of justifying our worth or justifying our identity or ourself before God. And we don't like this. We like our biggest ideas of how we can define and create our worth and our value and our justification in our life. And so during the Reformation, of course, it was very natural that within church life, things had gravitated more and more over those thousand years to what we do and what we contribute to our salvation and to our place in the church or our place before God. And so this recultivation of Romans chapter 1 and Galatians chapter 2 began to happen. But it wasn't, nothing, it wasn't anything new, really. It wasn't a new dynamic because this grace had always been kind of too heavy and a heaviness that people don't really want. Go back to Jesus and the Pharisees. In the time of Jesus, there were the Pharisees who were convinced there was more requirements on the human side than what Jesus was letting on. During the time of Peter and Paul, there was a group that was known as the Judaizers or the circumcision group. And they, would, they were following up where the gospel was making its way and they were coming in and saying, well, yeah, Paul gets it right sort of, Paul and Peter, but really there's also this layer of law that needs to be added before you can be sure of yourself before God and you need to be circumcised. And then the time of Augustine, now Augustine was, was one who really cultivated and drew out from these passages of Romans 1 and Galatians 2. He was really drawing out this sense of how we are made right with God, our justification by faith alone, that we can't get there, we can't contribute to it, God does it all. As he was saying that, he dealt with the Pelagian controversy. The Pelagians who, this, this theology of kind of adding to it on the human side, not being comfortable with that picture of humanity. And you go on and on and on, and you have this constant uncomfortableness within the church and outside of the church of kind of giving God all the credit for how we get reunited, how we get made right with God. So that in the time of, um, just leading up to Martin Luther's kind of explosion onto the scene, there was a, an intellectual, he was a Catholic, and he always stayed within the umbrella of the Catholic Church. And he was widely read by all the intellectual kind of founders of the Reformation. They were all schooled in this person's thinking, and this person's teaching, and this person's writings. His name was Erasmus. And Erasmus, we would have liked him today, because he sent out pamphlets and writings that were all over Europe that were satirically criticizing the abuses of the church. You know, making poking fun and being intellectually clever and pointing out the hypocrisies and so forth. But he stayed within that umbrella of the Catholic Church, even as he um, made fun of them and, and advocated for some reformation within the Catholic Church. But Erasmus wasn't comfortable with the ideas that became popular at the center of the Reformation of justification by faith alone, of this pure grace kind of philosophy. Erasmus at that time, and, and all of those who kind of were reformers and reformed thinkers like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli, all these other people, they read him, they knew of his teachings, and they, they would have known that what he did as he tried to explain our condition is rather than go back and tracing back to Augustine's understanding of Scripture with 
um, the human condition and how we need God to do everything for our salvation. He went back to a different church father named Origen, and he, and he liked Origen's kind of ideas about this better because Origen went with an obscure passage in the book of First Thessalonians to develop a scheme of how humans uh, have three parts. We have the, um, the flesh, the spirit, and the soul. And, and Origen said that the spirit was uncorrupted by the fall. And so we had this part of us really like we're one-third unbroken. You know? So we have this part of us still where we're not fully broken and we're able to do some works of our own justification before God. And so Erasmus was the, you know, the founder, the prince, they called him, of humanism of his day. And he was uncomfortable with grace. And on and on and on, you can draw out this uncomfortableness with grace and how we've always sort of had this. And you could make your way into our world today and say that it's still here again in our sort of self-worth culture that is really terrified of being told what the message of the gospel tells us. Terrified of being told that there's nothing you can do to climb the mountain to ultimate peace and meaning and enlightenment and to God. That's a very detestable kind of message to tell, to speak on the street corners of our world today. That there's nothing you can do to climb and get your way to God or to peace. The hope, we say, is within us. If you dig deep, you'll find the good inside. You get rid of all the negativity and distance yourself from toxic relationships that try to hold your goodness back and create your best life now. Be yourself. And so today, staying, if you, you could call it this, in the, patent, the, the, the title of the sermon, Staying Reformed, the difficulty of staying reformed is real still today. And part of the reasons why it's difficult to stay reformed is because all of us become peddlers, really, of our own lightweight substitutes for the gospel. We all become peddlers of lightweight substitutes for the gospel, of the heaviness of the gospel. Whether you're a a stay-at-home mom of small children, whether you're the recipient of recent medical news that is very crushing, whether you're um, you know, an unmarried 40-something in a world that feels like it's built around families, whether you're a medical student just trying to you know, put one foot in front of the other with such little sleep and so many expectations piled on top of you, or whether you, you're a grandparent who's, um, who's looking at life with maybe regrets or sadness about how your grandchildren have gone with their life, or maybe you've been successful in your career and you have more money than you need. Whatever it is, the question comes to you is this. What is the counterfeit hope that you are grasping for when you wake up in the morning and you're lacing up your shoes and you're going to look at, you're going to face that, face the day? What is the counterfeit hope that you're grabbing hold of? We all have it. Even the best of practicing Christians have something that is pulling them away from putting their essential hope in their justification before God. How are you attempting to make your case for your righteousness today? And the truth is our weightiest ideas of how our life might get back on track are flimsy substitutes in comparison to the gospel of grace. And so we we all need not just to have like an initial 
mental acknowledgement and a mental acceptance of, oh yeah, grace. It's, it's all about grace. It's all about being made right with God through what Jesus has done. It's grace. I believe that. We all need more than that. We need really like a revisiting over and over of that being the foundation of our life. Just another quote I want to read of Nathan Cole, who was a semi-literate farmer in Connecticut, describing the effect of hearing about the gospel from George Whitfield preaching in 1741. He says, My hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. And by God's blessing, my old foundation was broken, and I saw that my righteousness could not save me. And there's a sense in which as powerful as that is to maybe hear the first time, that power never goes away. The power of your life moving deeper and more richly into a life of God's ways is one that just keeps over and over rediscovering the truth that was in that quote. My old foundation is broken, and I saw that my righteousness could not save me. In many ways, being a Christian and staying a Christian, or if we're going with the theme, staying reformed is about turning daily and hourly to our justification and seeking no other false hope in being okay. It's a weighty enough idea. It's a heavy enough idea. It's a God-sized idea. You can wrap your mind around it all your life and never fully understand it. The other aspect of the watermelon, though, is the slipperiness. The, The watermelon polo game is difficult because it's covered in a grease and it's always slipping out of your hands. And in the same ways, in a sense, as we try to keep the gospel in our lives, there's a sense in which it's covered in a slippery coating. In many ways, I think probably the best way to think about it is we are the ones bringing that slippery coating to the table. So in the watermelon game, and I remember this distinctly, is that just when you think you have it and you're going to advance it, for the cause of your, you know, for your team to get it closer to the end zone. Just when you think that is when inevitably it slips out and either goes the opposite direction, falls down and kind of floats over there. Just when you think you're advancing it and you've got a good hold on it. In effect, there's sort of the same thing that can happen with being reformed or having good reformed theology. Is just the moment when you think you're you know, you're moving forward. You're, you're, you're making a great play for the Christian faith. It can be exactly the moment where you all of a sudden realize that you're, or maybe you don't even realize, that you're hurting the cause of Christ in this world. During the Reformation, just as Reformed interpretations of Scripture were being fantastically, beautifully articulated by the likes of Luther and Calvin, so also, something else was beginning to happen, is that in some of the places where these teachings were embraced fully, these teachings of justification by faith, and by you know, uh, building your faith around Scripture alone as the foundation, just as this was happening, so also what was happening was people were starting to burn other people at the stake and drown people in the water because they believed in Uh, believer baptism instead of infant baptism. And it's not just like, oh, it happened sort of an outlier. It it happened a lot. Dozens and dozens of cases of these these sort of group drownings and um, setting people on fire. 
Um, there was, you know, they, they tried to be ironic, or I guess, about it and say, like, oh, you believe in um, be- adult baptism, so we're going to drown you in the water and, and see how you do. Or if somebody was a teacher of the stuff, they might burn them over top of their own writings and theological writings and books. And so perhaps today, maybe it's safe to say that we can all agree that it's not really a step forward for serving God to execute those who teach a different theology of baptism than you do. For whatever reason, I can say that, right, today, and you kind of chuckle and you agree, but for whatever reason, at the time, just they couldn't see that at all. It, was, it seemed absolutely natural for a lot of these people to do this. And so we're warned really almost through the history of the slipperiness of our Reformed theology of, of kind of our own sin that in our own potential for hypocrisy that at the very same moment we're saying we believe that God justifies us by faith. We can at the exact same time be saying um, or, or just showing with our life that these people over here are going to have to be justified to me by their correct theology. And if they fail, the consequences are going to be grave. It's interesting that if you, if you kind of put yourself in the Protestant camp, the Reformed camp, and you go along with this grace theology, that the theology itself, the Reformed theology itself, tells you that your good nature has been thoroughly spoiled by sin. We were created good. There is a beauty to how God has made us and what we are meant to be. It's just that that's, according to this theology that comes from Scripture, it's spoiled, it's broken, it's in need of great repair. And so our theology itself should make us the most humble of all Christians. It should have, it should have us walking around, waking up in the morning saying, today, what is the new way today that I get to say that I, I was wrong? What is the, how is it today that I get to ask someone to help me see things more clearly? How do I need someone else's help today in order to be maybe more correct or more right? To be reformed really should be to wake up in the morning and to suspect my own hypocrisy. I'm pretty sure, pretty sure today I'm going to be kind of hypocritical in some way. There's going to be some hypocrisy at work. I wonder how it will be today. That really is, that would be an accurate and a good embracing of Reformed theology. I can stand up here and preach a sermon, and I can make that sermon my justification before the world. I can stand up here and even make a sermon about justification by faith alone, but I can be preaching that sermon, and in my heart I can be saying, I'm really being justified by this sermon alone. And whether you kind of you know, laugh a little bit, whether someone shakes my hand afterwards, tells me I did a good job, whether I felt good about it, whether I stuck within the time frame or not. By the way, how am I doing? Okay. The clock down there. Trust me, I've gone down that road a lot. But we've all got our way. What are you making your justification in? Another thing that happens is that we fall prone to the path of I'd like to call it, I'm, I'm kind of impressed, I've got to admit, with this phrase, weaponizing our Reformed theology. I, I like that. I don't know if you like it, but I like that concept. We, we can tend, and really, if you've seen it, you'd say that's accurate. We can weaponize our theology. 
And in my seminary days, I think I was drawn into this a little bit when I'd go around and visit churches. Um, basically, what we do is we, our theology becomes, and our belief about the justification through faith alone becomes not a way that we reconcile ourselves to God so much as a way that we separate ourselves from other Christians. And so um, we become sort of secret agents of the undercover reformed resistance, you know, like we're the, you know, there's lots of people who are reformed, but are you truly reformed? Are we, are we in, the, in, the, in them over there? Are they, you know, and so we naturally, when we go down this path, we become very divisive. We become cantankerous. And of course, we end up committing really the worst sin of all that you could commit is we just become no fun to be around, <laughs> right? There's a lot of ways that the gospel becomes slippery and that is too heavy for us and that even if you say you believe it, it just seems like it just you can't seem to keep anchoring your life and your steps moving forward on that grace. What's the way that it slips through your fingers? That's the real question today. And perhaps if we can um, come to terms with how heavy the gospel is and how slippery it is, you know, how heavy it is and how we need to cling to it daily because of its heaviness, how slippery it is and how we need to just allow that to cause us have a lot of humility, walk around with humility and attempt to hang on to grace, perhaps we might become of use to God to the waiting world around us. Because really the world is not a very gracious place. And we just went through this nine-week series on seculosity that proves it. We went through, one by one, all these different ways that you see examples of all around us of how people are beating themselves up in order to measure up, in order to get somewhere, and sort of, sort of prove their worth, and to have a sort of righteousness that they can feel good about. It's not a very gracious world. And newsflash, this room may be really full. Someone pointed out this room is pretty full today. And yet, most people that you know and that you spend your lives with are not going to join you here. In other words, there's a world around us, not only living ungraciously to themselves, but completely unaware of this incredibly explosive and powerful message that we claim to have at the center of our life. Are we going to live it? Is it going to be visible in any kind of way? There's um, an, old, an old story that's told, and just real briefly, there's a, a guy named Henry Francis Light. Um, in the early ni- uh, 19th century, um, he ended up becoming a pastor. He ended up writing a song that we've sung here before that goes, Praise my soul, the King of heaven, to his feet your tribute bring. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, evermore his praises sing. Praise him for his grace and favor to his people in distress. Praise him still the same as ever, slow to chide and swift to bless. Fatherlike, he tends and spares us. Well, our feeble frame he knows. In his hands, he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. And well before he wrote those words to that hymn that we still sing today, he had a powerful experience where he went to the the funeral of a good friend who came down with a surprising illness and, and devastating to go through this and to watch his friend die. But this is what he said through going through that experience. This is what he saw. 
of his friend. He said, he died happy under the belief that though he had deeply erred, there was one whose death and sufferings would atone for his delinquencies. Let me read that again. He died happy under the belief that though he had deeply erred, there was one whose death and sufferings would atone for his delinquencies. And um, this man being a preacher, he says, I was greatly affected by the whole matter, and I began to study my Bible and preach in another manner than I had previously done. Think about, think about that. Think about watching someone encounter death and the message, the takeaway being, the takeaway from this person's life was they're full of a sense of their own error and the massive, saving, wonderful grace that they can constantly lean into because of God through Jesus. And think about what, what does it look like for that kind of picture to flow out of your life and out of this church? Will, will anybody, in a sense, look at your life and say, I mean, and really come away saying, I, I went on a whole new path after noticing and seeing how this person had, was completely okay looking at their errors and their mistakes. They had a robust humility, and they had an incredible confidence in the love of God for them amidst their delinquencies. Let's pray. Our God of grace, your grace is so difficult to hang on to, and so we need your help. And really always, even if we make progress in this grace, we must always admit it has to do with your own help through your spirit in getting us there. So we ask for that. We ask that your spirit, using whatever means possible, whether through scripture, friends, or the communion table that we have a chance to look at and experience here in a minute, one way or another, would you keep helping the message of grace to become explosive and real and powerful in our lives? that others might find it to be true as well. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.